We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I'm probably going to disappoint some of our international listeners here, but most Australians don't live in the outback with kangaroos and koalas as pets. Most Australians actually live in cities. The 2016 census showed us that 71% of Australians live in major cities, and only 10% of Australians live in towns with less than 10,000 people. With this gap on the rise, it's important that the small communities around the country are not forgotten, while large cities continue to grow. In order for small towns to function, they need access to important infrastructure like hospitals, schools and markets, but they also need buildings that help foster a community's social development. These gathering places have helped small towns around Australia develop some of the best examples of social resilience in the whole country, and architects who are based in these regional areas designed the majority of these buildings. The work of regional architects show how vitally important architecture can be for both community strengthening and engagement. I'm Daniel Moore, and in today's episode of Hearing Architecture, we've asked architects from around Australia how architects have contributed to Australia's regional communities and how we can nurture regional areas as we plan for our country's future. A lot of the benefits of living in a city seem to come purely with size. When there are more people in one place, there should be more going on both financially and socially. This has meant that historically, business and the arts generally gravitate towards cities because there are greater volumes of people to work with. So, with so many more perceived opportunities in cities, it's not clear why people choose to live far away from them. Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood tell us about why they chose to live and work in a regional city and how this has affected their practice of architecture. We're here because of connection to place and location and history. But we're also here because we love the landscape and the location. And personally, I really enjoy living and working in a city where travelling to work is not a stress and being able to get out into nature and outdoors to do outdoor activities is easy and accessible and it's very beautiful. So one of the benefits of working regionally is you get to work in many interesting places and spend time going and experiencing different regional towns and cities and in our case Indigenous communities and you get to work with a very diverse community of people. Much more diverse I think than if you are living in um, a very large city within your own cohort of people. So. Ellen Buttrose, who also works with Pod, sometimes says that when she lived in Melbourne, it was like living in an echo chamber where everyone just repeated what your thoughts were. Whereas when you're in a regional area, that's not the case. Everyone's opinions are quite different. So the work that we contribute in each town and location, it is different depending on that location and place because the climate in, say, Weeper and Arakoon is different to the climate on Mornington Island. And the transportation needs and the cultural needs will be different. And they're different to that of Tully, which is just down the road. Probably the kinds of opportunities for work in regional areas, most of them are anchored around um, government funding. So government funding for schools, government funding for clinics and hospitals, government funding for housing. 
there's not a massive quantity of private development outside the resource industries. So most of that work is related to social infrastructure. And it also presents its own opportunity to do good work as a result of it being social infrastructure. The only thing I can add to that is um, working uh, in a regional city uh, can be quite tough uh, compared to working in cities too. The opportunities are, are much less and the competition can be much more fierce too. So uh, in order to survive, let alone succeed, you've got to be uh, very agile in your, your thinking about how you do your work and how you um, build relationships with clients too. So it's yeah, working regionally is, is a very different bag to working in a, an urban uh, major centre. In addition to this, working in Cairns has allowed POD to develop a very specialised understanding of the impact architecture can have on the area's specific cultural and social needs. We're for, at the forefront of intercultural design practice with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations and people, and there are people around the country also doing this work, but the work and practice that we do through POD, that methodology and outcomes and thinking is also filtering back into city and urban environments and contributing to a dialogue around intercultural design practice there. And so I think that's one of the benefits of diversity Sometimes when you're doing things in a regional area, which is really different, where it's, whether it's remote, extreme tropics, different cultural diversity, because it's considered a bit exotic or the other, in inverted commas, then people in cities are interested to know about it. Yeah, I agree with that. And while sometimes it feels like we're on the outer edge, on the, the, the far northern extreme of the continent and, and not thought about much, every now and again we get an awakening that the work that we're doing up here and the opportunities that we have to do this work are of that great interest and somehow make it to the centre of thinking or research on those sort of topics, which is, which is fantastic. That was Shanine Fanton and Belinda Orwood from POD, based in Cairns. If a regional area has fewer people than in the city, then chances are they're going to need fewer buildings than in the city. When this is true, it might be difficult to understand how an architect could bring anything to the table for a town when it has all the buildings it needs. Jessica Mountain and Emily Van Eyck talk about how architects are spatial thinkers and how their experience in design thinking can go beyond a traditional architect's role. For me, this question represents something that, that I've been thinking about recently, which is architects having greater roles than just being an architect. And I've had a lot of friends and colleagues employed in sectors which wouldn't usually have an architect or it might not be the traditional role of the architect to do that job. And it's in these more urban fields and I think that can only be a massive benefit. Um, it's just an understanding that architects don't make pretty buildings. They just have a critical thinking about all spatial aspects. And it's not just spatial, it can often be sensory and that can be urban and it can be rural. And having anyone out there that's going to think in those terms can only be a benefit. I think sometimes the smaller communities, the smaller um, regional areas, that can be even more of a need because you have a less affected site in many ways. 
And so anything that you put there is going to have a greater impact than what it would if you were putting something in a heavy urban environment. So in short, I would say it's um, incredibly necessary to have architects in, in regional areas and they can give so much there as long as they engage with that regional area and they take a really good understanding. There's like heaps of examples of architecture in small towns and small communities which doesn't look at what's around them because the architects haven't spent any time there. So as long as they can spend a lot of time on site and in the place and with the community, then they'll get a great outcome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think Emily's answered that very well. I guess in part of your question or part of your answer, it'd probably be really great if people knew that architects did work beyond residential and private houses and public buildings and that it didn't have to be an expensive thing for people with with money Mm. and just that it really can help all kinds of different people um, in different situations and that an architect is someone that you could hire to help solve a whole number of issues Mm. in rural, regional and urban spaces. And I, I think that probably is part of our responsibility as architects in some way to get that information out to the public. And that goes across anyone, even across all of our friends and highly educated people. A lot of people don't really know what we what we do and what we can do. So I think that would be really influential across all of these areas um, to know that we can be useful. Yeah, because like sight, sight is at the forefront of all that, hey? and that's the way we're taught now, or that's the way we were taught and that's the way we're teaching up-and-coming architects is, is to deal with your site and that's that site is in your property boundary but it doesn't stop there and I think that understanding the site is like a it's scalable it means that architects have that ability to influence things on a, a much greater spatial level mm-hmm. to to a benefit like to a benefit that works with the existing conditions but but also maybe offers um, an insight with that, all that massive historic knowledge that we have of buildings just and, and urban environments. That was Jessica Mountain and Emily Van Eyck from Mount Eyck Architects, based in WA. Beyond Sydney and Melbourne, Australia's capital cities are relatively small and could be considered regional. With that in mind, even though a city might be the biggest urban area in a state, the people who live there still have a deep connection to the landscape and character of the area. Yvette Breitenbach tells us about the importance of designing in a way that maintains the character of the regions where her projects are based in Tasmania. What is regional when one is centred in Hobart in Tasmania? Because I do consider Tasmania to be regional. And then of course we have the regions of Tasmania compared to the small cities that we live in. So living and working in a regional area has been absolutely fascinating. And in the 29 years that I've been practising here, We have seen an influx of population coming to settle here and that has on the one hand just begun to change the economy but it's also thrown up a lot of contradictions and challenges. So designing designing in Tasmania as a regional area we we are very conscious of trying to keep the uh, local character, the regional character. We're very conscious of the positioning of our work within a landscape, which in this case isn't like areas of mainland Australia, vast and flat, but it is vast and towering in a way in that most of our work is 
in and around Hobart. We have Kunanyi, Mount Wellington, towering above us. Both the directors from Morrison and Breitenbach Architect lived and worked in Cape Town, which had Table Mountain towering over it and had the sea. So that designing between um, a mountain and water and then natural landscape around is absolutely inherent in all we do. So with the new pressures of an influx of people moving to the regional centre of, of Hobart, we do really very much try to keep the essence of place within our designs. Then if one's talking about um, actually designing in the outskirts of Tasmania or on the coast or what have you, I think that scale and local character and community is absolutely essential to capture. In a way, I was thinking that, you know, in the, in the, the cities, or, or be they regional, we can, you can make a much stronger statement. Because it's, whatever you do is, is having to compete with the hurly-burly, albeit a slower pace in a regional area, of the city. So I think in regional cities, look, anything that one designs makes a bit of an impact. I think that with the changing cultures that we have, probably we are more able to actually see how our design is actually reflecting that. Whereas I think in big, busy, growing mainland, non-regional um, city centres, gosh, it can be hard to um, make an impact um, other than by extremes of height or language. That was Yvette Breitenbach from Morrison and Breitenbach Architects, based in Hobart. Sometimes when larger buildings are proposed in regional parts of Australia, the client might engage an architect from a larger city to design the building. The advantages might be that these architects have vast experience working on large buildings, but they might be disadvantaged when it comes to understanding the community where the project is located. Sue Dugdale tells us about the diversity of views in Alice Springs and how architecture affects the regional identity of a place. So I do live and work in a regional area. I'm in Alice Springs and I've had a practice here for about 20 years. And I think from my point of view, the best way to learn from a strong regional community is actually to be part of one and, and to practice in one. And that's, of course, my experience. So yeah, having lived and worked here for many years, and I find that I continue to learn from the community here. The Alice Springs community is strong in some ways, but it's also fractured and problematic in other ways. It's definitely different from living in larger metropolitan areas. Cities, you know, our cap the capital cities of Australia are rich and diverse places, but ironically, I, th I think they're also places where like attracts like. So you can end up in a sort of echo chamber, hearing your own views reflected back to you, rather than hearing the differences around you. And really, that doesn't happen here, where I live, um, in Alice Springs. There's just not enough views the same for, me to, for them to be the only thing I hear. So um, there's a couple of major opportunities I find working in a very regional area, which sometimes feels like a kind of remote outpost of architecture, but um, I love it just the same. So one of the major opportunities in this town is that we live with a larger indigenous population than the Australian average. So I think 
perhaps the indigenous population of Australia is a few percent, three percent or four percent or something, and in Alice Springs it's 20 or 25 percent. So it's a marked difference. This enriches my life and my work in many ways. So an indigenous perspective affects the cultural identity we all hold as Australians. And so I feel I'm sort of closer to the production of that identity and I understand it better. And it definitely affects how I practice architecture. So a couple of the ways it affects how I do practice is I tend to be conscious of and calibrate how self-referencing I'm being in my work. So in the aesthetics I produce and in the values I'm promoting in particular projects. And I'm aware that architecture can be used to advance and add value to the lives of disadvantaged people. And generally, indigenous people are disadvantaged in our community economically, health-wise, etc. Whether from incarceration or chronic ill health or addictions or poverty. So working in proximity to that population, I guess, is a way of feeling more real about the work that I do. And making more of an effort to add value to people's lives. So the second, I guess, major opportunity of this place, so the first one was working next to the Indigenous population, but the second major opportunity is to be a shaper of regional identity for the place. I think if you live in a large city, you're probably one of many, many architects, and, and if you're not doing major public projects, you probably don't get the opportunity to really create some of the identity of those cities. In a small town, I think you do. So having lived here for 25 years, I feel ready and qualified to have a go when the opportunity arises. If I can, I like to reflect the qualities and identity of the region back to the people in the place so they can see themselves reflected through a, a positive um, contribution rather than through negative news stories, which is often the only other source of identity. Hopefully it's an iterative process that's open to many participants in architecture and other disciplines. So the creative disciplines of, of writing, of artists, um, I think all join the voice of architecture to create a common identity. That was Sue Dugdale from Sue Dugdale & Associates, based in Alice Springs. It makes sense that the majority of funding in infrastructure projects goes to the areas where the most people are. But the core necessities in smaller towns still need to be addressed. So when an architect is engaged to design a key project that will enhance the experience of a town, this can be the difference between a place that people visit and a place where people live. Kylie Shunans describes how the funding of built works in regional areas in Australia has been able to transform smaller communities. In WA, it's such a vast state that it's traditionally been quite focused on Perth and the metro area in terms of good architecture. I think over the last eight to 10 years, with the Royalties for Regions program, there was quite a shift from just being quite Perth-centric to development out into regional areas as well. So we've been quite fortunate that we've seen quite a large number of really beautiful civic buildings and civic spaces be constructed. And what that's done for those communities is provide them the grounding of being able to create towns where people want to stay for longer. I think that our regional towns have been suffering and, and are suffering from an ageing population. There's a lack of things to do within those towns. 
and a lack of really interesting built form has meant that the places are dull. There's, you know, the younger population isn't wanting to stay around. They're wanting to move to capital cities where there's things to do. So I think that historically with these civic buildings that have been built that's been important and moving into the future, I think that needs to only increase because particularly in the northwest of Western Australia, we have such a vast amount of opportunity up there to be able to build great towns and that's already started happening, the likes of Caratha and, and Port Hedland, but a lot more can be done. And so good architecture in these spaces is, is just as important for creating communities as it is down in Perth, if not more so, because these buildings become real jewels in, in the crown and the ability for communities to become more rounded We've done quite a bit of work across the state in a number of civic buildings. So we've done a netball pavilion in Port Hedland and fire stations throughout the state, done a lot of work in the aged care space across many town centres through um, Albany through to Geraldton. So again, these are all community building projects. To see, for example, the Port Hedland netball pavilion the number of kids that are there to play sport with their families on a Saturday it just it makes it worth it and you know it, it gives them something to do and some purpose and and helps to allow them to explore different opportunities like they would within the cities and so that's really important and it also helps to make our state more sustainable you know, you can you can have all these towns, but with towns, particularly in the northwest, that have always had a mining focus, if we don't create these long-lasting structures, they'll just become transient towns, and they won't they won't be around in in thirty years. So it's important that we do do that. That was Kylie Shunans from Fratel Group, based in Perth. Australia is a massive country, and some regional projects are located more than 1,000 kilometres by road away from an urban centre. This sometimes means that sites can only be accessed by plane because roads get cut off by swollen rivers or because projects are located on islands. Despite their isolation, this does bring some advantages when it comes to green design. Joe Rees shares how working in the Northern Territory allows people to build in response to the climate more easily than it might in the cities. So in the Northern Territory, we have so many far-flung places that we drive to and fly to, to be able to talk to clients and the occupants. And I think far-flung places really give us the greatest opportunity to design and build climatically interactive architecture, where you don't need air conditioning, because you're so far from a place that can really bother you with next door neighbours. There is always a question of insects and that that is an interesting and difficult proposition. So screening is important, but this idea that you can live quite comfortably in a far-flung place rather than in the city without air conditioning is really important. And I think that the more opportunities we have to design those buildings and get those buildings built, the greater impact that they will have on informing generic building stock, which is built by builders, not designed by architects. 
so in that kind of sense that the mainstream fashion, if you like, follows these outstanding examples. I think we have an opportunity and I think that's what we do well here, particularly in Northern Territory, because we have a lot of government funding to do buildings in remote places. Sometimes it's hard to get enough money <laughs> to do a project well because it's very expensive to build in far-flung places. But on the same hand, if it's expensive to build, then it makes more sense to make a building that's climatically interactive as not dependent on air conditioning. That was Joe Rees from Ajar Architects, based in the Northern Territory. Peter Stutchbury also believes that architecture should connect to climate and always designs his projects with a focus on how they connect to site. Here, Peter tells us about the adventurous nature of regional architecture when the projects connect to their location. I think there's a new voice in regional communities from younger architects. Not so much older architects, but younger architects, and I think it's terrific. You know, places like Armidale, Tamworth, you know, North Coast, Byron Bay, you know, um, South Coast, Marimbula, Vega, all those places have got a sort of um, young architects are finding their feet in those places. But the reality is, is that, you know, 90% of people in Australia live on the coast. So really our regional places are pretty sparse. But it's my firm belief that if you do a significant work of architecture, it will attract people. Even just to visit, you know, I mean, e.g. the block, people, a lot of people watch that show, you know, because people like buildings there. Buildings are tangible. People can say they like it or they don't. People can touch it and smell it and look at it, you know, whereas poetry is intangible or, you know, even a novel is to a degree intangible because it, or a painting, you know, do you like that painting? Oh, I'm not sure, you know, but do you like that building? No, immediately. So it has this sort of magnetic quality about it. And I think, I would like to think that regional people are more adventurous simply because they have to be survivors and these places won't survive unless they are adventurous so for instance a place like orange in region new south wales has got its own organic industry it's got its own new wine industry you know which has been developing over years it's got a one of the best restaurants in australia in orange you know it's it is reinventing itself from the tradition of farming and, and there's several centres like that and we're trying to get involved in them because I'm a very strong supporter of regional centres. Whether they're developing an architecture or not, I'm not sure. I think that, I think there's a sort of fault line there between um, people understanding Australian land, landscape, and people wanting work. No, but, but I think if they don't do buildings that respond, those buildings eventually fail. Not just physically, but emotionally fail. You know, if a building connects, then it's got a lot better chance of surviving into the future. It's like, you know, the in, in Indian temples, it's like beautiful Iranian buildings with the, you know, the stone walls and the ventilation and all that. Those buildings are sensible. Why would you knock one down? You know? Whereas an industrial shed, pull it down at the drop of a hat, you know? 
So we did a woolshed in regional Australia, which, you know, sort of reviewed for the first time in 150 years the way woolsheds are done. And it set a precedent, in fact, you know, it was quite remarkable in that sense. And, and I, I think that that's where a lot of opportunities lie for younger architects, you know, in terms of experimentation. People in the country are far more willing to accept alternate suggestions, mainly because they've been living with weather and weather presents different faces all the time. And unless you're adaptable, you'll go out of business. We're in the city, we're immune from weather. That was Peter Stutchbury from Peter Stutchbury Architects, based in Sydney. Even though it seems like a lot of people are seeking tree or sea changes, it doesn't seem like the majority of Australians will be turning their back on cities anytime soon. Dick Jarman tells us about the benefits of regional areas in the face of climate change and how the communities in regional areas are sometimes more socially resilient than Australia's cities. The future is not regional. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing I must say. And when we look at mass urbanisation in countries across Africa, where we have 800 million people and growing very fast, uh, moving some of the, the biggest cities in the world growing there, that the future of our planet is very much, will be the vast majority will be living in cities. That combined with climate change, sea level rise and uh, other changes will mean that more and more of our regional areas will actually become uninhabitable and more people will move to the city. What we need to do is preserve our regional areas, which are growing areas. Of course, we, we build cities in the wrong places. We've traditionally built, every city is built on this river for obvious reasons, there's water. But of course, we should be building them probably in the desert. Because <laughs> if we're gonna concrete over something and build something, well, that's a good thing to concrete over. Whereas we need to grow food in the other areas, and that's what we need to preserve. I think this question though, is not so much about that part of the future. It's more about the communities and economies which are within regional areas and the communities. And I think there's a lot we can learn from regional communities. And that is about connectivity. And I, I had a farm with my partner in the mainland. And uh, even though we were about a kilometre away from our nearest neighbours, we knew them very well. Um, they were always dropping in to see how we're going and they would always have an, an eye on our property. I didn't, have not experienced that recently in cities. In fact, cities can be some of the loneliest places, even though that there are so many people there. And I think that because there aren't the capacity or the, the spaces to help generate connectivity. What we need is to continue conversations and create spaces which create conversations. One of the projects I worked on at Lyons was the John Curtin Medical Laboratories for ANU. And a lot of the design there was about how to break down the problems of specialization within scientific organisations where often the scientist sits in their laboratory or the office and, and doesn't speak to the scientist in the next laboratory office. So by creating desire lines in the building and from there to the toilet or to other places and crossing them, you increase the chance of people bumping into each other and then by putting a breakout space in that location, you uh, then have a place to sit down and talk and facilitate that conversation. So I think what we have in regional areas are these, 
this space for conversations and other things to occur. That was Dick Jarman from Circa Morrison Architects, based in Hobart. Rob McGoran also believes that Australia's future is not regional. Rob tells us that despite the way cities are winning by the numbers, regional areas can achieve great results when the creative side of the economy is nurtured along with the financial. It's an interesting question, the future is regional, because the data says it's not. Uh, recently there's been publications talking about a current $600 million diminution of the contribution of regional communities to the economy, I think in Victoria. I'm not sure that it was Australia. I think it was only Victoria. And they're very significant numbers. And it's reflective of the challenges that we're seeing where the nature of work is much more around aggregations of talent. People with talent are typically attracted to high concentrations of talent because that offers them more prospects and opportunities. And so cities have been typically the the beneficiaries of that. I think we've been interested as a practice in where can you subvert that? uh, And how do we build prosperity into regional centres and build, if you like, on their natural advantages? It's not easy. It's not easy in those uh, circumstances to uh, make that happen with success, but it is possible. And it's also possible in smaller cities. I mean, Seattle's been a great exemplar of that in the past. You know, a city that was around a million people, had produced Boeing and Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks, etc., in the corporate world, and then you know, the Ray Charles and Jimi Hendrix and Nirvanas, uh, etc., in the creative uh, world and some of, you know, with the University of Washington, one of the great universities in the United States. So really, for me, places like that and Austin, etc., that are breaking the mould of what sort of scale do you need to be at to be both a independent and innovative and constantly reinventing yourself, community and economy. And there's nice green shoots in Victoria to see the castle mains of this world, uh, really, and yakandandas, etc., really becoming quite interesting and robust local economies. Gives me hope. That was Rob McGoran from MGS Architects, based in Melbourne. Despite the small population in regional towns, it doesn't mean they only need to be maintained in their current state. By testing innovative urban design strategies and built solutions in small towns, it could bring new life to an area that might be getting by with insufficient built outcomes. Jeeva Greenaway tells us about how we can learn from regional centres in Australia and how they can serve as testing areas for design innovation that could be beneficial in both regional and urban areas. We do tend to privilege our cities over our regions. We know that the vast majority of people live in our major metropolises, but as property prices escalate, as the challenges of diminished plots of land available to develop in our major cities, there is a tendency now to start to gravitate out towards the regions and and the hinterland and, and other locations across our vast continent. And as an architect, 
I think we do have a responsibility to contribute into the conversation of how we shape our regional centres and some of our you know, also remote areas as well. And we do a lot of work engaging in, in some of those key and, and major regional centres, knowing that they are actually starting to escalate in terms of development. You know, they are starting to really build up and what we're going to see is many more satellite cities occurring starting at those key and, and primary regional centres. And then the, the interconnectedness, the infrastructure, the links become very important. So the, the role in, in thinking big and understanding how we look at it from an urban design standpoint and is a really integral part. And I think it's important to understand that good design doesn't only have to occur within our major cities. And the regional centres often afford greater flexibility in terms of the opportunity of how we can deal with the environment, how we can start to understand our relationship to the landscape, how do we very much sort of connect a country again. You know, the regional centres often give us a little bit more flexibility. We're not hemmed in as much, where we don't have major issues necessarily around sort of overlooking and, and you know, small little plots where, you know, people living cheek by jowl. So I think there's certainly a, an important contribution that architects can make in, in looking at ways to perhaps use the regional centres as a litmus test to challenge how we start to do things. And, and hopefully, in, in many respects, some of the work that happens there starts to influ influence back towards our cities as well. Because you know, the, the environment is really important, you know, the, the resources, whether it's power or water, these are major issues that regional centres are often grappling with. So this is where the innovation comes in, this is where our skills come in in terms of you know, really finding ways to respond to distinct challenges that may exist elsewhere. And I, I think it's certainly something that we shouldn't shy away from and we should engage more in, and lean into and, and provide our skills to help centres which um, often need revitalisation as, as all places do over time and then certainly we can provide some, some high level vision and thinking around how we start to mobilise in, in really activating some of those other centres. That was Jeeva Greenaway from Greenaway Architects based in Melbourne. In addition to Jeeva's suggestions, Joe Ageas adds that the success of regional towns' social structures can benefit a lot of people beyond their own area. Joe tells us more about how regional areas can benefit from being connected to other communities around them. There's a lot of challenges in regional Australia. The challenges are economic and social. However, I think we can learn a lot from regional Australia through the social sustainability of the way their communities are organised. Generally, their communities are quite resilient and strong and enduring. And that's instructive, not only for architecture, but the way perhaps communities within denser urban environments might be organised. I think one of the big opportunities for regional Australia is the notion of networked regions, where uh, you have different sectors of the state with perhaps two or three centres that might, rather than being seen or planned as isolated, become part of a series of network communities. And I think we're seeing that emerge, particularly north and south of Sydney and immediately west around centres like Mudgy, orange, etc. Um, but I think there's more opportunity that can be developed in the way that's organised and arranged from a 
strategic planning point of view. That was Joe Ajeas from Cox Architects, based in Sydney. While Australia's overall population has been increasing, the vast majority of this growth has been in the major East Coast cities. This means that Australia is continuing to densify in only a few specific areas. While this can increase the benefits of public transportation and reduce energy consumption, when it comes to population growth, there is more that can be done beyond choosing regional and urban living. Professor Philip Tallis breaks down some of the issues that have shaped the divide between regional and urban Australia and how we should be considering the future development of the country so we don't make similar errors. I, I think there's a real difficulty about saying the future is, is regional when there's such an emphasis on cities and the population clearly for any number of reasons, pr primarily economic and social, gravitate to the cities. I think that what that shows in Australia is we don't have a national population strategy. We've been, we haven't built a new city basically since maybe Canberra and uh, a few in the interwar period, but basically in that huge period of growth after the Second World War, we have completely been disinterested in city building. And so we've basically had sprawl on the back of existing urban settlements, be that capital cities or even our regional cities. So. Frampton had the proposition in the 80s when I was a student and he came out and spoke in, in Australia about critical regionalism and I think there's been this generalisation about an Australian architecture it used to be the sort of the clarion call of you know what's what's an Australian architecture looks like. I've always thought that's a, a fake question and I think what's always struck me is how distinct each Australian city is. And so you go to, to Brisbane is really totally different to Melbourne. Melbourne and Adelaide probably a little bit in common. Sydney and Hobart to do with the landscape setting, but really, you know, given their history and Sydney's growth, there's not really that much in common. Canberra is very particular as a planned city. Um, Perth is the most isolated big city in the world. Darwin's actually got a surprising urbanity, which is close to Asia. And then, of course, you can go down through the smaller cities in, in Newcastle and Wollongong with their, their strong port and industrial um, uh, histories. So, but they also have very distinctive places, both um, in terms of climate and geography and geology, in fact. So all of these things are important considerations when you get the opportunity to build in one of them, regardless of where they are. But I think that as a society. We're the only country with a whole continent to ourselves and our use of the continent has been woeful and our use of the environment has been profligate and I think architects have probably been more aware of this um, than other professions but we need to be calling this out. There must be a way we can use an entire continent with more intelligence and more sensitivity than the way we've chosen to build over the post-war period. So we get an epic fail on uh, regional uh, identity in that period but there's never any reason to give up so you always need to be optimistic our role is to propose things that are good and clearly articulate why things are bad and how they can improve so that's what we need to think about how we explain that that was professor philip tallis from hill tallis architecture and urban planning based in sydney there are great reasons to live in both regional areas as well as in major cities. The choice of where to live will always come down to the priorities of the individual. With regards to architecture, whether it's a footy club, a concert hall or a shack, it doesn't matter where these buildings are, everyone deserves access to the best design outcomes that Australia has to offer. 
Now that it's becoming easier to connect with architects in isolated parts of the country, we're beginning to see that their work is some of the best in the profession. Lee Hillam from Dunn & Hillam Architects tells us about how regional areas deserve the same things that our cities have and that the needs of both are not that different. I think it's really exciting that there's more people considering living in the regions and that it's not so city-centric. But the thing that I've always had a big problem with, and maybe it's because I personally sit in a divided state in this, in this way, is the way that people in the city will immediately understand that people in the country think different or want different things, and the, and this, the people in the country do the same thing. So because I'm, I've got a foot in both camps, you know, I will go to the country and talk to people in the country and they'll be telling me, well, you're from the city, you don't really understand what we need. And then I'll be in the city and hear people saying, oh, the people in the country, they want different things. And it just drives me nuts because I think actually Everyone does want the same thing. And in fact, in most cases, no one, everyone doesn't know exactly what they want or what they need. And they're influenced by things like the television shows that you mentioned before. Um, so that's an interesting thing when working in the regional, especially in the little, in the really small little towns, people are so used to doing everything for themselves and just getting by that now that there is some money to support the communities and to build libraries and to renovate some of their old heritage buildings and things, they do tend to have a bit of a funny attitude about it, which is, oh, well, you know, we're just little old, you know, insert country town name. And, you know, we don't, we don't need all this. We don't, we don't need it to be too flash. We don't, you know, it's almost like they feel like they don't, they don't want the fuss. Um, they don't want the flash of it. But when you give it to them, when you kind of convince them that it, they are worth it and that these buildings are, were built in the, in, the, in the time they were built, they didn't have that attitude. They were built solidly and they were built to be, some of them to be quite flashy and to be really proud. Then once you've convinced them of that, they get really into it and they get really excited about it. So um, I absolutely think that the, uh, the regions are going to be really coming coming ahead and that people are starting to understand that I think wherever you live it's what you make of it so I often think that you know I've lived in Sydney for a long time and I might take advantage of 0.05 percent of the advantages of living in the city I mean what what do I do here that really justifies me being in the city I'm not running off to the theatre every night I'm not you know so and, and it's an age and stage thing, you know, I can't. I've got a business to run, I've got kids, I've got... So I'm, I could be anywhere. So, you know, people think, oh, wouldn't it be great to live in the city? And they get down here and their busy lives just take over and they don't do anything more than they're doing if they're living out in Wagga. So I think that the, there is so much more um, in common between the regions and the cities than there are differences. There, are, there, aren't, there aren't differences. They're just... Um, I don't know they're just all all the same and 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 they're all kind of needing the same things so I I think that's where I almost didn't want to answer the question about the regions because I feel like m making a point of a difference is um is conceding to that idea which I don't believe in <laughs> Hi, 
This has been episode six of Hearing Architecture. Thank you so much for listening. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Hearing Architecture featured the following guests. Shanine Fanton, Belinda Allwood, Jessica Mountain, Emily Van Eyck, Yvette Breitenbach, Sue Dugdale, Kylie Shunans, Joe Rees, Peter Stutchbury, Dick Jarman, Rob McGorran, Chiefa Greenaway, Joe Agius, Professor Philip Tallis and Lee Hillam. The interviews in this episode were produced around Australia by Imagine Committee members. Jamila Jahangiri, Daniel Hall, Kirsty Voles, Callie Marnane, Chris Morley, Sam McQueenie, Reese Curry, Brad Weatherall, Jess Beaver, Bede Taylor, Rebecca Webster and Daniel Moore. The AIA production team was Daniela Crawley, Stacey Rodder, Monique Woodward and Tom McKenzie. Produced by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.